What's going on, everybody? This is AJ, your host of the Blue to Green podcast. So first, I want to apologize. It's been a while since I posted. Holidays happened, all the fun stuff. You know, life happens and all that good stuff. Second, I want to apologize to the gentleman that I interviewed regarding releasing this podcast. His name is Jesse Crossan, and his Instagram is second, chan- second underscore chancer 434. I had this conversation with him in the beginning of December, and again, due to life and the holidays and kids and Christmas break and all that good stuff, I just haven't had time to sit down and do this. Uh, My conversation with Jesse was a fantastic one, and this gentleman, uh, he served 19 years in prison in, in Virginia, I believe, in Virginia, and I stumbled across his Instagram one day, you know, through reels, just flipping through, mindlessly flipping through, looking at reading stuff and, you know, occupying my mind. And he showed uh, short clips of his time since he's been out of prison. Um, I didn't go into the reasons why he was in prison or anything like that. You can go to his Instagram and follow him. But it's his mindset. It's his mentality since he's been out. And he's documented this amazing journey that he's been on from uh, being imprisoned at a very, very, very young age. I believe he was just 18 or 19 years old when he was imprisoned. Talks about prison life and all that. And then what he's doing to become, no, not become, it is a productive member of society, his, his mindset, his mentality, what he's doing and where he's going in life. And it just goes to show the fact that even though this gentleman, you know, he spent many, many years in prison, he has totally reinvented himself. He has taken responsibility for what he's done and he's moving forward in a manner in which most of us who have never served in prison aren't doing. Most of us just throw pity parties. So I just wanted to say thank you to him for for doing this. Thank you to him for coming on. And again, I apologize for taking so freaking long to get this out. Um, again, his name is uh, Jesse and the Instagram, his Instagram is second, uh, the, the word S-E-C-O-N-D underscore chancer, C-H-A-N-C-E-R 434. Obviously, I'll put the link and everything in. Give him a follow. His story is pretty incredible. He's a great guy. Uh, very well spoken, very articulate, intelligent dude, and I he is what I hope we can reform the criminal justice to become to create as people exit the prison system. So again, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this. I'll try to be better at releasing more stuff and just going through some issues with my back and all that. So as it goes, I'll do the best I can. But thank you very much for sticking in there, and I hope everybody had a, has a happy new year and the rest of the year goes better than the last one. Take care. Talk to you all soon. Jesse, good morning. good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm making it. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. You, uh, I've, I've obviously been following your stuff, and it looks like you've had a tough week, so I apologize for that. So I hope things are getting better, though. I'm getting through, but yeah. thank you. So I, like, I, I understand that this is, you're like, okay, what am I doing here? Um, the entire thing that I am is that I'm a former police officer in Arizona, and now I've moved on, and I'm uh, I'm in the medical cannabis world. I'm part of an organization called Normal, Arizona Normal, and what we do also is, you know, uh, try to help with criminal justice reform and all that. And then it was, it was several months ago I started seeing your uh, Instagram reels pop up and all that stuff, and I followed you, 
And I've loved everything that you've been putting out. And you're kind of, you're the, you're what this world needs at the moment is, is salvation and redemption and someone who's being open and honest about their past and what they've gone through and all that stuff. And I just love it. And I love your positivity and what you, and again, your, your openness is actually extremely refreshing. I appreciate that. And so it's nice to see someone take a different, it's, I, I had a, um, I went to a, an event last night and there was a guy who was a state trooper. And it's always awkward to have that initial conversation, but like, Oh, what do you do? What is your history? But we ended up both loving jujitsu. And he was like, man, we got to roll sometime. Like, come on, I'll stop by your gym. It's like, so there are these common bonds and I, I just love seeing that. That's very cool. That's very, very cool. And, you know, and it's the sort of thing where I can speak on behalf of, you know, my, my previous uh, law enforcement training and all that, there's such a separation and there's the, you know, you can, you know, <clears throat> cops can do no wrong. And those people are, you know, the other people are just shit bags and they're bad guys and all that good stuff. And I just, you know, and unfortunately that's propaganda that's beat into a lot of people, unfortunately. And as, as I've matured and progressed throughout life, I've realized like, no, no, we all make mistakes and we all screw up and we all need redemption and, and we need to grow. We need to have that innate drive to, to grow. Sure. So if you wouldn't mind, um, I just I just wanted to get a little history on you. I mean, again, you know, you've been open and honest about why you went to prison and all that. And I was I'm actually kind of curious about something. And again, trying to get to the root of issues in society. You know, what what led you down the path of what happened to you in your youth that caused the issues that caused? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. Um, I think that's always been a struggle for me because I looked for a defined moment or event. And I, I think like every counselor I've gone to says that, that my pattern and my trauma is consistent with, you know, some, some specific things, but I don't have any memory of them. So it's okay. really difficult for me to say, you know, I was abused or I experienced this because I don't remember that. And I don't actually have a lot of memory for most of my childhood. Um, so I, for me, I never felt like I had permission to be messed up. I never felt like I had permission to be hurting or, or feel lost. And I think it was because that was never normalized to me. I was, Either I was told, like, you're happy and you're healthy or right. something happens to you and you deal with that. But when you don't know, it almost feels like you lose even that choice. And, and this was from a very young perspective, and I didn't even understand that maybe in words. But I understood where it felt like, oh, I shouldn't feel bad or I shouldn't feel like something's missing. And I know my mom has talked about there was an age where it was just like a light switch flipped. I went from this, like, happy, engaging, curious kid to just withdrawn and, and insecure and, and just didn't engage with the world. And then that was me searching for validation or connection or something. And I didn't find it. Like, I didn't know how to find it. I didn't know how to put myself out there. I didn't know how to make friends. So I just had this really awkward time. And then I found drugs and I was like, uh, it's a group of people. There's a sense of community. I feel better when I do this, all these uncomfortable feelings that I don't want to feel are gone. It just felt like finding home. And I think initially it gave me what I was looking for. It gave me a sense of community. It gave me relief, but it immediately then kind of went downhill. Um, and it also was the fact that there was no coping there, but how am I going to change the way that I feel? How am I going to get around people that are going to make me feel good? Even, you know, if we're making terrible decisions. Um, so I think it was the lack of coping. Cause I don't even like people ask me all the time. I don't have a problem with drugs or drinking or what anybody does. I, I don't think that's an issue. It's a question of what, where are you coming to that from? If you're coming to that from a whole happy place, like go out, have a great time. If you're coming to that from a fundamental place of brokenness or not feeling like you're you're enough. Well, you're going to kind of fall into it. And I think that's the danger because we don't teach kids coping skills. We don't do trauma informed care. We right, don't have things right. that actually give people a foundation from which to live. 
That's very, very, that's unfortunately what's happened so many times. And I've got a, a, a son of mine who's 15 years old and in high school and experiencing all this. And I, and, you know, and again, through maturing and growing and trying to find myself better in my old age now, um, you know, it, it, I deal with the trauma and, you know, and, and I want to figure out sources to things and how can I grow and how can I get better? And even, you know, I mean, we still need help with coping skills even later on in life. And I ask my 15 year old, like, well, what are they teaching you in school? Are they teaching, you know, about no. No, they're not teaching anything, you know, it's just the basics and, you know, parents and, and, and kids are so disconnected from each other nowadays. It's these stupid things that are raising, you know, raising kids out there nowadays. And that's where they're getting their, their gratification and there's, and their self and their self-worth and everything. And it's just, it's disgusting how piss poor their coping skills are nowadays and their inability to just figure anything out. What, you know, I went in the juvenile facility yesterday. I'm starting to go in to try to work with the kids there. This is my second trip in, and I was, I, I'm kind of disheartened by how excited they are just to have anybody come in. Okay. They don't really care who it is or what they do, but somebody they can talk to and ask questions of. And what I looked at and what I listened to was just a group of kids that were like every other 14 and 15 year old kid. Same bad decisions, same impulse control, but they grew up in an environment that has pushed them in the absolute wrong direction. I mean, I, none of them were, were mean or malicious or sadistic or any of the things we have, this whole idea of a super predator. They were kids, but they were yeah. kids that grew up around violence and gang families, and then that's what they got into. That's what they were raised into, and it just breaks my heart because I see a bunch of really sweet, really kind, really funny kids who are doing very well where they're at. But as soon as they go out, unless yeah. we get them somewhere else, they're going to go right back to what they were doing, and it just – Again, we're trying to give them the skills to make different decisions. I was really great. Um, they're doing a pilot program. They're doing independent living for the kids that are old enough to get them out of the environments they're in because they know we can do all the work in the world. But if we send them right back home, they're going to be right back here. I think the same that same thing for people coming, you know, who go to and serve their time and then get out. A lot of times that part of the recidivism is they are coming right back out <clears throat> into the exact same environment that they went into and there was no growth on the inside. One of the things that really amazed me, though, about your story as well is that, you know, I, again, I've I've followed, I've watched all your reels and all that good stuff. And I mean, and you talk about so many things is, you know, you, you, there was one specific one that you spoke with recently that was like uh, somebody had asked the question regarding, you know, was it all just badasses that were in prison, this or that? And you're like, no, I was surrounded by a lot of, you know, emotionally immature people, you know, who were just trying to find their way. And my question to you is this, is that how are you personally able to make this growth inside of a system that's not designed to help you grow? How, how did you overcome that? I mean, I got really lucky and that's, that's like the, the foundation of kind of what my message is, what I'm trying to do with the nonprofit is the fact that I had support and resources. So at the most basic level, I had people who cared about me and believed in me. So when I didn't believe in myself, I had someone encouraging me and pushing me and lifting me up rather than dragging me down. Most people don't have that. I had access to financial resources so I could go to college. I could read books. I could eat. And I wasn't having to work 16 hours a day in the kitchen or hustle all day or struggle to have enough toothpaste and enough coffee and enough other things. So just that freedom, the emotional support, the, the financial support was huge. Then it was additionally the fact that I was able to get around good people, both inside and out. Like two of the people that have affected me most profoundly in my life were prisoners. They were in prison for violent crimes, and yet they had developed some sense of self-awareness, some wisdom, and they passed that on. And one of the most important things that they passed on was that it's not all about me that I have to see outside of myself. And so a lot of my growth happened in helping other people because by helping other people, tutoring, mentoring, doing mm -hmm. the work that I was doing, I got to know myself better. I got to like myself better. I got to have a better understanding of how I worked. 
I get to better understand, like, if you ever try to teach somebody something that you know, but you've never taught before, it's the most humbling thing in the world because I realized it's a skill I didn't have. Like, I can do, I, I may be able to box or I may be able to whatever, but to teach somebody else to do that, I have to gain a whole different understanding of myself. And that was really profound. And then I had professional support. I was, I went to mental health inside. I went to see a psychologist the whole time I was down. And a lot of guys would say, oh, you don't want to do that. They'll put a mark in your record. Or you don't want, you know, you don't, that's, that's for weak guys. I'm like, I don't care. I want every opportunity I have. I'm going to take every resource. And I had a psychologist that I talked to once a week for 12 years. I was able to have a family friend who said, hey, I'll talk to you. Like, let's talk about meditation. Let's talk about gestalt, psycho or gestalt therapy. Let's talk about, you know, what you can do to better yourself. So I just kind of like put myself on a path that was about initially just kind of like fixing myself or addressing myself, but then eventually about like, hey, how can I get better and how can I help other people get better? How can we lift each other up? And that was my core focus. And strangely, that's one of the hardest things about being out here is because it's so easy to get diverted from that. It's so easy okay. to fall out of the habits and the patterns that made me so happy and made me where I was uh, because, yeah, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of opportunity. And instead of going going and doing jujitsu, eh, I can do this over here and eh, I'll get to it later. Did you find jujitsu inside or when you got out? Inside. So okay. <clears throat> I'd always loved martial arts. I did karate as a kid. I wrestled in high school. And I remember when um, uh, one of the first guys that I tutored our deal was I was going to make sure he got his GED and he was going to teach me how to box. And so I was like, okay, I never, I always, like, as a karate guy, I always thought boxing was stupid. And I started learning from him and he was a heavyweight champ at the prison at the time. And he fought like a middleweight. He was amazing. And I learned so much. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to learn and I want to grow. And I actually, I got attacked uh, by a guy who was in the middle of a mental breakdown, just out of nowhere, hit me and basically attacked me. And I was like, okay, I need to learn more than just boxing. Like, cause I need to learn whatever I can. So I kind of went on this quest. And so I came across a guy who did, you know, a couple of Chinese martial arts. I came across a guy who'd been doing jujitsu for 20 years. And I just, everybody that I found, I would get in with them and say, hey, let me study, let me learn, like teach me whatever you can do. We would try to smuggle books in. Like that was another one of my focuses. Because it was really the same thing. Like bettering myself wasn't just like reading books about parenting or books about whatever. It was, you know, mental, physical, spiritual, like this whole kind of relation to myself. And martial arts were a huge part of that on every level, physical, emotional, and mental. I never personally got into martial arts and now I have a very broken back, so I can't, but from everybody I know, it's, it is this, it's mental training. You know, it's from my understanding of it, from my outside perspective, it teaches that discipline. It teaches that training. And and you stated it best when you start teaching someone, you really define yourself. And I've, I've learned that when you become a teacher, you become a better student. Absolutely. You just, you learn how to like, oh, these are the things I don't know. And I need to figure out how do I get that information from people and how do I better myself? That's very cool. Very much so. Yeah, I was I was grateful. This I, I did a video this morning where I was sitting outside where I was like, you know, it's it's before six a.m. and it's below freezing and I got a really bad headache, but I'm here because you know that's where I go and I feel I find a sense of peace in that. I train with the group, the same group of people Tuesday and Thursday at six a.m. and I love that because it's it's we do we go in there we try to strangle each other for an hour and then we come out and get coffee or just walk away and it's. <laughs> It's, it's such good therapy. It's such good training. It's such good, you know, it's, it's such a good place to learn about myself and learn, you know, what I want to do and how I want to react to bad situations. It's also conflict resolution. <laughs> Probably not the path that we should take, but yeah, <laughs> it is that. If it could be done civilly, like, all right, I got beef with you, but let's go handle it out on the mat and call it good. That'd be a, a better place. There are, there are a lot of violence intervention groups that do that, that have neighborhoods where there are issues that they can't settle. And they say, look, put the guns down. We're going to give you boxing gloves. And the response to that is, is if you're a kid who's only ever carried a gun, you don't actually know how to fight. You grew up in a different world. You get hit in the face a couple of times. You hit him a couple. Your, your, your lungs are just burning. All of a sudden, all that fight goes out of you. Yes, somebody I, told me. 
they said acute stress will scrub away uh, like unacute or just kind of like randomized stress. And I found that to be really true because if I'm having a really hard day and I go and I push myself through a CrossFit workout, I go to the gym and get choked out. There's no room left for the, the self-pity or the anger or the sadness. None of that. There's just like relief that I'm done. Yeah, I agree 100% with as much as I'm able to physically do right now. I push myself as hard as I can. And that just elite, you're focusing on on the content of getting better, on the growing of the muscles of the whatever the case is. And yeah, just you don't have time for BS in your life or anything else like that. I think if a lot of the world ended up pushing themselves on a regular basis, it would create a lot less stress in this world. They'd actually have an outlet. I agree. So how did you injure your back? Uh, so it, my back injury just was from time and stress. I did military for four years. I did 11 years in law enforcement and then it just popped. It was just, you know, just the, the gun belt, wearing the gun belt and wearing the big, the big kit and all that good stuff. It was just, then I left the road when I say the road, like from a, you know, being in a patrol car and responding to calls, I left that and became a detective. And the joke is, yeah, it's like, you know, adding the freshman 15 on, I got fat from sitting behind a desk. And then so I'd go from sitting behind a desk 85% of the time to out doing the actual work for 15% of the time. And then just I wasn't working out like I should have been. I wasn't staying in as good a physical shape as I was needed to be for like actually running into after and chasing after people. And then it just popped. So then it's 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 been a downward uh, spiral since then regarding my back. I've had surgery, surgery failed. Now I'm in, I just got into I got rear-ended two months ago as well, which just made it all worse. So I'm doing physical therapy and I've had steroid injections 27 times in my back. Um, I've done um, plate, platelet rich plasma as well, the stem cells. So now I'm just on a path of just keeping <clears throat> things the way they are until I can have surgery again and get fully fused. So I'm, I am jealous though, because I, I've, I said I've got a perfectly healthy 15 year old who wants to get into boxing and this or that. And I'm like, I wish I could get into this stuff with you because I'm, I'm only 41. You know, I feel fairly young and I, I'm physically capable. I just can't injure my back anymore so yeah so i do i was going to ask you though like what so are you still you're still in virginia correct and that's yeah. where that's where you served your time and that's where that's you where you were yeah i've, I've basically never left okay <laughs> I, I grew up here did time here and then got out to here gotcha um the one thing i was going to ask though was like what are some of the i mean you know, to listen to your story, just like you were just stating just a moment ago, like you had monetary resources to buy food and to buy toothpaste and to buy like basic necessities. Why are these things not provided? I mean, I understand state funding and, you know, and all that good stuff. But like, why are we not providing the basics to people to just be human beings? Um, I think it's a cost issue. Nobody wants to invest in prisoners. And there's this false dichotomy that if you're investing in prisoners, you're not investing in schools, you're not investing in social services. And, and I get the argument. Um, but I mean, the, there are options there. Like you get an indigent pack if you have less than $5 on your books for a month, Okay. Um, which which doesn't help for that month that you know you don't have any money. But what they give you is this little clear tube of toothpaste that I've literally never seen anybody brush your teeth with because it, it just doesn't work. Like it and you get a little mini toothbrush and you get a little mini razor and you get the one that used to make me so mad was you get uh, like a hotel sliver of soap for a week. And they're like, all right, here's your soap. And it's, you clearly know this is not enough soap for a human being to use for one wash or two washes, no less, you know, a week of washes, but they do that. And they say, okay, we've checked that box. We've met that need. And I think that so much of the scarcity and so much of the kind of struggle is behind people not having enough or not having the basics. Because what I watched was when the stimulus checks came out, uh, the Congress didn't, uh, omit prisoners. So okay. people went through all these issues. Everybody got stimulus checks. 
So all of a sudden, everybody has money, and, and sure, people were gambling and getting really high and doing stuff, but there were almost no fights. There was almost no conflict. People having enough stuff reduced conflict tremendously because it was no longer about, okay, I don't have enough. I need to get more. Hey, how am I going to do this? It's, hey, I got enough money to buy all the soups I want. I'm good. I can buy coffee. I can buy toothpaste. I don't have to worry about it. And I watched guys, and this, was, in a way, was heartbreaking, was also really practical. Guys that had never had anything, they would buy, you know, 50 toothpaste from the, the parlay manor. They would buy 50 deodorants because they're like, I'm never running out again. Like, <laughs> I'm never going to struggle with this again. And it makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, stock up while you can. And I, I just, again, it's part of the whole, like, again, I was law enforcement. I did not deal with the Department of Corrections side of the house. My job was on the side of the road, you know, did my investigation, then sent them on <clears> the way. And so there's a lot of stuff that I'm just unaware of. I've only actually been in two, I've been in two jails. Well, I mean, I took people to jail all the time, but like actually inside and spoke with people a, a handful of times, it's actually something that most cops don't do. Most cops don't understand that aspect of it unless they get into probation and other things. And again, it's just one of these things where it just boggles my mind. Like we, we can fund all of the, if we can do these pet projects for billions of dollars in other countries, why can't we give basic resources to humans that we can bring them back into society. We can train them. I, I I believe this is my personal opinion and please tell me where I'm going wrong here. Cause you've lived the life. Like I do believe it should be kind of like the military where you wake up, you have morning formation or PT of some kind of something, but then you need to have classes throughout the day as opposed to just sitting around doing, you know, nothing but scheming, you know, and it, it, there should be some sort of regulation and form format to it to, to make you better, to, to get you back into society, re reintegrate you. I 100% agree. I, I don't know why that isn't the priority. I don't know why it isn't done that way. I think it's just really disappointing. But, you know, I, I did a video a while ago about um, people who just watch TV all day. And that's all they do because they don't have to do anything else. Like you're required to get a job or you lose good time. They only also have enough jobs for a third of the people there. So that means two thirds of the people there are like in violation of the requirement to have a job at all times. So, you know, what is the reasonable expectation? Um, and some people are really good. Like I got really good at building structure in prison. Um, now, now that I'm in a different kind of situation, I'm trying to rebuild that structure. I'm trying to like rebuild the things that made me happy. Some people never do. Some people just never have anyone model that behavior. They never figure it out. Um, but it's, it's kind of scary because to see the guys who've been down for 20 years and all they've done is, you know, smoke cigarettes and, yeah. and watch TV. Like it's, it's really unfortunate. Did you ever go into – you know there's a big conflict right now of state-run prisons versus private prisons. Were you ever in in either – were you ever in any of the private prisons? I was not. So we okay. only have one private prison in Virginia, and everybody wants to go there because the food is better, and it's okay. so corrupt because they pay everybody 10 bucks an hour that you can get anything you want. You'll be like, I want three cell phones and a bag of heroin. They'll be like, all right, we'll deliver it. <laughs> so it, it has a very unintended effect, and it, it's not a safe place. Like it's it's fundamentally not a safe place. Um yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. Now, I think that if we were going to use the model realistically, like if we were going to say, okay, we're going to send benchmarks. Like this private prison gets paid based on the recidivism rate of its its clients. Cool. If if less people come back after prison than at a public prison, we're going to give them more money. If more people come back, we're going to give them less money. I think that would make sense. But to create a prison model, any of the prison industrial complex, these companies that benefit from people getting locked back up, who can use some of their profits to lobby for harsher sentencing, who can use some of their profits to lobby to not have services, not have rehabilitative things and not have support, they're investing in their own business. It's, it's yep. horrendous. One of the largest, and I said I, I'm a I'm a cannabis advocate, and one of the largest uh, proponents, I'm sorry, opponents of legalizing <laughs> cannabis federally is a set, the union for Department of Corrections workers because so many people are low level drug offenses, and that keeps the prisons full. 
They get paid overtime. They get funding, you know, for the overtime and all that. And it's like, why would you lobby to keep people out of prison? But that's they're lobbying for their own jobs is what they're doing. And they're and they're making money hand over fist in it. You know, there was there was a great report. Uh, During COVID, there were 11,000 people or more like 11,600 people released from federal prison because of COVID concerns and health concerns. And of those, I think 16 have committed a crime and come back. Okay, so we had more than 11,000 people in prison that pose no threat to public safety. And yet we have them incarcerated at this incredible rate at this incredible cost and to no benefit to anybody. So if we say, oh, well, we needed to punish them for whatever they did, well, there, there has to be a more meaningful way to punish or rehabilitate or treat this issue than to lock people up that don't need to be locked up. Uh, agreed. And I just I don't understand why we don't focus on the rehabilitation part. I don't understand why we can't offer trade services or whatever the you know whatever the case may be a, a, to get people better lives. And again, if you look at it from an economic, you know, if you get look at it from a, a Democrat side of the house, it's about the people. If you look at it from a Republican side of the house, it's about more taxpayers to produce more money and generate more revenue. Like this is a win-win for everybody. It's not a win-win for the prisons though. Exactly. And there's I mean there is an investment class. I mean um have you ever seen there's an old video called uh it's is we is or is we isn't going to get a prison. It's no. the most horrendous, racist thing you've ever seen in your life. But it, it was highlighted, um, Sarah Marshall's podcast, uh, You're Wrong About, did a whole thing on prisons and how nobody used to want prisons in their towns or their cities, but now rural areas and some urban areas have become entirely dependent upon the prison as an industry. It's become like a company town. And so it's gone to the point of literal cities putting out these these horrible videos, trying to get prisons built, trying to get jails built in their area because they realize they can build an entire economy on it. Um, it just, yeah, the, the reality of it is really depressing. And it, it's interesting. I have a couple of the officers who were used to work at the prisons, um, who actually now I'm allowed to, but they originally reached out through social media and they weren't supposed to. And they were just like, I'm so tired of this. I hate this place. Like we've got to do something different. Like, I don't know if I can take it anymore. And it's just to hear the people that are on the front line, that's their reaction. And then the additional thing about reform, it's like you said, okay, for Democrats, it's people for Republicans, it's money. Well, we don't think about the correctional officers who have one of the highest rates of suicide and substance abuse and spousal abuse. Like our system is literally killing them too. So if we're not going to care about the prisoners, let's at least care about the frontline workers. Let's actually put our you know money where our mouth is and say, hey, let's build a system that helps everybody. I'm so glad you said that because very oftentimes that Department of Corrections workers are overlooked and they have these these types of issues. Yeah, you had a big old glowing sun right there. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. No, and it, but like, but to hear you say that, uh, let's care about the, the people that are doing it. That's refreshing because a lot of people don't hear, and especially you having the experiences that you did, you know, everybody, I, I, I look at the human side of everything and everyone, and I don't care what your job is or anything like that, or what, what position led you to where you are. You are still a human being. Yeah, I I do think though that this is my personal opinion that there are just some people that are beyond redemption. It's a very minority. There are, but there are some people that are just. I mean, would you agree or disagree with that? There are some people that are like, whether it's mental health, mental illness, or whatever the case may be, they're just beyond. They're beyond repair. I I think that's probably true. I, I, I think. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, but my flip side to that is probably 95% of people are well within the realm of being able to rehabilitate and get them back into society. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think the other thing is, even those people that are beyond redemption, the question of how we treat them says more about us than it does about them. Um, I mean, I, I could see some people saying, and I've, I've heard this argument, I can't actually argue with it from a logical standpoint. They say, look, I think euthanasia would be like the most humane thing. And I'm like, okay, like, 
You can make that argument. I think it's a little scary because who are you really to define who's on that side of one line or the other? But I get what you're saying. But otherwise, if we just treat people humanely, regardless of who they are, that builds us up rather than tearing us down. Because, again, watching – I used to watch officers come in. Virginia is by far not a bad prison system compared to a lot of the other ones. But I've been a couple places that have not been the most pleasant or you've had this really toxic culture in the guards. And I've watched officers come in, just people. like, And I've watched them just slowly decline and gain weight. And you can just see the way it's like draining them and yeah. it's, it's hurting them. And even the ones that are like complete assholes, even the ones that I can't stand – I don't hate them for that. I realize that that's a person in pain, the same way as a prisoner, the same way as an officer, the same way as anybody. You're not going to be, you're not going to hurt other people because you're happy. You're hurting other people because you're in pain. So whoever that person is, I want them to get the support or the resources or help they need to get out of that pain, both so they can stop hurting other people and so they can stop being in the, in pain themselves because that doesn't benefit anybody. It hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And that's just, it's just a cycle. And that's one of the things that I just had a conversation with a detective um, over Zoom, who's who's trying to highlight the good officers and you know and 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 say that the, what these officers are doing is wrong, and it's the sort of thing where we would have less uses of force against our citizens if we had health, mentally healthy law enforcement out there doing a better job, properly trained in jujitsu, properly trained in tactics, and not just no mental health resource. Because I mean, again, the mental health resources across the nation are are crap are absolutely terrible. And it's just amazing to me. It's like, this is the number one thing that we actually should be dealing with. And we're just shoving it off to the side. I mean, and that's the, I, I got a lot of flack because I talked about Derek Chauvin and everybody's vilified him and say, he's the most evil human being in the world. And what I see is, yeah, he was checked out. If you look at that video, he was just not there. I don't think that makes him a horrible person. I think that makes him somebody who was traumatized, who didn't have the coping mechanisms he needed, who wasn't getting the care they needed. He was in that position, I at least assume, as a result of his job and the stresses he experienced. Because what I think about for police officers, and somebody told me this, and I, I can never like unhear this. They said, when you have to go from finding a dead two-year-old to doing a traffic stop to stopping an active shooter all in the span of like a day or two days, it, it does something to you. The PTSD that comes from that is so debilitating. And then you're asked to go do it again the next day. And then you're asked to have a really calm period where everything seems normal and then out of nowhere, you get an, it just, the trauma of that, it's it's like war. I can't imagine. It that It's exactly what it's been equated to. I never, I was military, but I never went overseas to combat, but I've had com friends who came back. They're like, you know, the post-traumatic stress st indicates that the trauma is over. However, for prisoners, for people who live in traumatic situations, for law, for EMS, firefighters, law enforcement, it's not post-traumatic stress. It's every day the same stress is over and over and over, compounding on each other that never get resolved. It's, so over Thanksgiving, I, I, I was able to pick one of my buddies up uh, in July when he got out. And I'm close to him. I'm close to his family. And so we had a Thanksgiving. And it was funny because we were in this big house. His sister has five kids, you know, this really rambunctious thing. And one of the kids started running down the stairs and he and I both like braced at the same time. And I looked over, nobody else noticed, nobody else, but we heard, and we were back in that place. We heard a yeah, fight. We heard, we heard something coming that nobody else heard. And it's like, you know, I've now been out for 15 months. I don't know how long it takes. Like, I don't know when that goes away, if it goes away. But when I saw both of us had that reaction and the whole world just keep going, it's like, no, we do carry something. Like, we have something. And that's one of the reasons I've really been grateful. Social media has allowed me to connect with a lot of veterans, a lot of law enforcement people, a lot of correctional officers. A lot of people are like, hey, I feel the same way you do. Like, I'm struggling the same way you are. Because the important thing to me is to recognize that we are far more alike than different. And if we see each other as people and we see each other as, like, the struggles we're having or the experiences we're having, it takes away all the stigma and all the division. We can actually start to help one another rather than like making these lines or being, you know, good or bad or enemy or friend. 
that's that's exactly it and it all it takes so much strength and again for me personally i stated this several times now is that one of the hardest things ever to do in my life is to admit to myself and then to the world you know that hey i i have traumatic issues that i have to deal with and i'm not okay i need to get help i need to get resources i need to figure this stuff out for my family for my friends for the world as a whole you know i don't want to be another statistic or anything like that and it just doing that opens so many doors up that nobody wants to open that everybody's scared to talk about they think they're going to be stigmatized i agree and that's I think it's so important you, know, you talked about kids being raised by phones. It is so important to model healthy behavior and to normalize reaching out for help and normalize admitting that we're struggling and normalize saying, hey, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't have to numb that or run away from that or deny that. I can admit I'm having a bad day. And I think that the more people we can get to do that rather than the kind of normal Instagram thing, which is, hey, my life is beautiful and everything is perfect. It's such a dangerous thing and it's so destructive to society, especially so destructive to the coping mechanisms of kids who are coming up and that's what they see. Well, I mean, again, who who wants to watch the real stuff? You want to watch the flashy, you know, you got a Bugatti or whatever the case is, because that's way more fun and exciting. Unfortunately, yeah. although I, I don't I, I generally I actually watch a lot of motorcycle stuff on Instagram. That's my I this meme always comes up or this video always comes up. It's like, congratulations, rather than hot chicks, you've just got motorcycles and dudes on your page. I was like, yeah, they got me, but I'll do that. <laughs> And something will come up with, yeah, Bugatti or somebody in a yacht. And I'm like, this is just, there's something about this that is gross. There's something about this that is like, while someone is starving, I am lording over the seas with my, you know, billion dollar yacht and bragging about how much money I have. And I don't, I don't care what people do with their money, but I know I like nice cars and I like motorcycles, but I cannot imagine spending my life indulging only, you know, the kind of pleasures that I want or that I have when there are so many people in need, when I could give back, when I could provide services, when I could support people. Like, I just don't understand that mindset. I guess because when I was younger and I had that mindset in the middle of my like crazy addictive phase, I was miserable. I didn't realize I was miserable, but I was freaking miserable. And I look back, that was the worst time of my life. And it wasn't just the environment. It was the fact that I was so self-centered that I couldn't feel any joy. I couldn't experience any good. I, it was just, it was a horrible time. And so I think about the people in those positions. I'm like, God, that has to be horrible. Like it looks really pretty, but how empty do you feel on the inside? That's one of the things that I've talked with my, my one of my kids about is you know, there's a lot of confusion that's going on in the world right now. And I'm not going to go into specifics just because I don't want to, you know, it's just a lot of stuff, but people are confused in their own minds. And the thing that I always say, and it's it, particularly the youth. And I have stated to my son, like these, in my opinion, these are people who are not doing anything else for anyone else. They're so trapped in their little world. They're so trapped in their little, you know, they have to, I, everybody needs to feel validated. That's, that's, everybody needs to feel loved and accepted and all that good stuff. But they're so wrapped up into what they're doing. They're not looking on the outside. Like, how can I help somebody else? And just as you said, I, I find my greatest fulfillment doing what we're doing right now. And it's going to get released to people. There's going to be somebody that appreciates this. And there's going to be somebody that messages either you or me and says, thank you so much. You know, and it's, that's how I find my fulfillment is to help other people. You know, I'm not confused in, in who I am or what I am. You know, it, it's, yeah, I took some time to find myself as we all do, but there's so many people that are just wrapped up in their own little worlds that aren't moving forward in life and aren't giving back to anything. They're just stuck. I agree. And I mean, I think that's the tragedy because we don't model that. We model, you know, the yachts and the Bugattis. We model saying, if you make enough money, you're going to be happy or everything's going to be okay. We don't model the community. I mean, the whole idea of like, it takes a village to raise a child. I wish that we had some reminder of that, that it takes a village to be an adult. It takes a, 
you know, in, in the situation that I'm at with this recent breakup, one of the hardest things for me is, is just getting used to being alone again and then finding that balance between spending time by myself and reaching out to friends and being like, hey, I need to go out. Like, I don't care what we do, but I need to go out and do something because if I'm just stuck in my head, it's not going to be good. But at the same time, not running from it completely and taking time a couple hours to sit there and be uncomfortable and process and experience. Um, and I never had anybody model that. Like, I, I had to figure that out in prison. And I guess I had enough people that I could I could – I could read the books or I could have people kind of like pass that message along, but I wasn't around to see it. So I'm just really lucky that I had that perfect combination of forces that allowed me to come to that conclusion or that realization because I know a lot of people don't. I, I, I don't think you were lucky. I think you were also seeking it though as well and, and taking responsibility for your own life, which was, you know, I'm, I'm sure nobody wants to fall back into that lifestyle and go back. Yeah. But so many people don't know how to reach out. And they're also, I mean, in how many times have you, known somebody needs help, but they don't want to reach out because they're scared and they feel they'll be emasculated or, you know, they'll feel less of a person because they asked for help. Yeah, hundred percent. I just don't understand that. So it is. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, my question to you is this, is that what is it that you want to be known for? You know, now that you're out and you're doing your thing, like what is the thing that's, that's driving you and motivating you and that you want to be known for? With with all of your experiences and your openness and all that good stuff, what is what is it that you think? I think fundamentally it comes down to being able to help people in, in whatever capacity that is. You know, with a nonprofit, being able to do reentry services and hopefully working towards having a reentry center with housing and employment and training and therapy on site. Um, with personally going to the juvenile center, working with those kids, hoping that I can find one kid and make a difference. And you know, even if it's just that one seed that they planted, it takes forever to nourish, but it comes up. Or like next year, I'm looking at applying to grad school, going and trying to you know, get my doctorate and actually become a psychologist and say, hey, how can I do this? How can I apply this in my life? Um, but it's, yeah, I, I think I want to be known as, <laughs> I remember uh, uh, there were three things that I took as like the greatest compliments when I was in prison. One was kind of silly. They used to call me Karate Jesse because when we do training, I was always the one kicking when everybody else would punch. And it was just fun <laughs> to be. I, it was it was fun to be able to do something that I love and see have people see me doing what I love because I think that's what it is when when you see somebody doing what they love it makes you happy like whatever it is like I don't like some sports but if I see somebody doing what they love it makes me happy. Um, the second thing was that people said hey we can come to you because you always have like something to say you always have a perspective you're always you know whatever and the third thing was we come to you because you're always willing to listen. And if I could do those three things, if I can do something that I love, if I can always be able to share my perspective if I have it, but also hold space for someone to share whatever they're going through, whatever they're experiencing, and help them process just by being a presence, not by trying to give them an answer I don't have, or not by trying to explain or understand, but just by being present. If I can do those three things, I feel like I'm going to live a really good life. That's awesome. Those are awesome goals. What is your nonprofit? Uh, Second Chancer Foundation. Okay. Okay. Very cool. And it's going to be focused there in Virginia? I mean, ultimately, I would love to to scale and expand uh, statewide and nationally. But for now, we're doing, um, like I said, we're doing reentry for adults through the UVA Equity Center, which is great. Uh, we're going to do the reentry classes in the juvenile facility. Um, I'm working with a local psychologist to create a, a trauma support group so that we can have some resources because for you know law enforcement, for veterans, for prisoners, the moment somebody says, "Hey, I'm a counselor, I'm a therapist," they run in the other direction. But when somebody says, hey, I've been where you are and this is how I got through, they're usually willing to listen. So if we can do peer support training to provide the, that help and those services for people who understand them or they're not necessarily so put off by. Um, 
And then, yeah, I mean, we just, we want to expand to do what we can. And we're kind of pivoting. We moved to the juvenile facility because we had a, a spate of shootings in the city and it's all gang stuff and it's all 14 and 15 year old kids. Yeah. And it's all these same kids that are kind, decent kids, but are just in this life because they don't know anything different. We're hoping we can give them a different perspective. Um, yeah. Are you working with any lawmakers to change any laws or anything like that? When, so there, there are rules around uh, 501c3s and political work. Right, so I, right, right. I may work personally, but I can't in the capacity of the nonprofit. There's, there's only a certain amount of time and energy that's allowed to be invested. Otherwise, you have to get a different uh, sort of or different classification and all different rules. And yeah, so I mean, I do personal advocacy. I went to the General Assembly last year okay, to speak. I meet with the, the Commonwealth attorney for both Charlottesville and Albemarle regularly. Like I, I, I am involved, but I can't within the capacity of the nonprofit. Yeah, you'd have to become a 501c4 and register as a lobbyist and all that stuff. I, the, the Arizona Normal is a 501c4, which deals with the political side of cannabis. And then I'm also a member of a 501c3. So I'm familiar with, oh, wait, time out. We can only do limited exactly. things without crossing lines and then getting in trouble with the feds. And that's not a good thing. I'm trying to stay out of trouble as much as possible. <laughs> On that note, though, I mean, again, you, you seem like you got a lot of good things going, though. Is Do you have any personal concerns about falling back into old ways, into doing like that? Or are you just so far removed from that, you're just moving right along? And Well, I would say two things. I mean, this the simpler, the kind of shallow answer is I, I can't imagine – I can't even recognize the person that I was. Like I, I, I don't I don't understand fully or I don't – it's like I can't viscerally understand how I was there. At the same time, I realized that we are a, a combination of our habits and our choices and our, you know, our, our path. And if I were to make bad choices and bad habits, even if they were small, eventually they would compound. So I know that it's possible. Like intellectually, I know that I have to stay on the path that I'm on or I have to stay on a healthy path or I could end up back there. But as far as like experientially, I, I just can't imagine it because I can't imagine how I would – how I would lose myself again because I have this clear memory of how miserable I was. And if, if it was still glorified in my mind or I still believed I was missing something, maybe, but I, I was <laughs> – that was the unhappiest period of my life, and I cannot imagine wanting to go back to that place. That's a lot of times like they, the, the, using, the using of drugs and that just – people don't comprehend that, what it, that it's masking everything. And then if you can get to the root of the whatever the issue is that's causing someone to use drugs, you know, we could – not have so many addicts that are running around the world right now, unfortunately. I mean, I fully believe that the trauma is a root, whether it's, you know, acute trauma, it's uh, growing up in poverty, it's in scarcity. It's the root of everything, the mental illness, the addiction, the depression, like everything that I watch guys struggle with, the, the root was trauma. And we don't have substantial trauma-informed care. We don't have substantial care of any sort. And until we have that, I mean, that's when I got out to start the nonprofit, Initially, all I wanted to do was trauma-informed care and DBT, which are essentially like life skills or coping skills. Um, but what I realized is I can't have somebody sit down and talk about their trauma when they don't have a place to live, when they don't have a job, when they don't have enough food on the table. Like that, they're living trauma right then. Like you said, it's PTSD that's still ongoing. So we're trying to do – we're trying to have a middle ground. Like eventually we want to have a facility where we have housing and training on site. But for now, we can at least connect people with resources. We can have reentry classes where we give people the skills and the information they need to get on their feet. And then once they're there, once they're stable, we can say, all right, now we can sit down and talk about what the root of this is. Now let's get to the core. But we have to make sure that people are in a place where they can do that because you can't be running from the fire while you're trying to talk about your feelings. Yeah, if you can't – if you're sitting there starving to death. You can't be talking about your feelings. Yeah, no, I completely agree. There was a little thing. It was a couple of years ago. It was during the peak of COVID when everything was still locked down. We weren't as locked down here in Arizona as other states were because uh, we're all cowboys out here and don't really care. But um, 
there's a, a, a local uh, a gentleman on one of these Instagram or Facebook pages, I forget, was asking for, he ran a halfway house for convicts who have gotten out. And he says, like, we're we're just starving and we need food. I made contact with him and had a rapport with him for a little bit. Unfortunately, he passed away. Um, but it was the sort of thing where he's like, right now, what's happening is, okay, these these gentlemen are getting out of, out of prison. They're coming to me. They're required to go get jobs. They're required to do this. They're required to do that. However, because everything's shut down, they can't even go get an identification. Because they can't go get an identification, they can't go get a job. Because they can't go get a job, they can't get money. Because they can't get money, they can't get food. And they're like, he goes, I have guys that are like ready to, to go back out on the streets and start selling drugs again just to get some money for food. I'm like, time out, dude. I can provide you with some food. Like I can take care of a couple of weeks of food for, for you guys. But it, like those insanely basic things that people who have never gone through that take for granted. Like I didn't know that when you get out of prison, you're you're just what you have, that what you came in with is what you're released with. And so how do you get a state ID? You know, how do you go get a car? How do you do any of that stuff if you don't even have the basic necessities like an identification? So I just and, don't understand why why we could do that. Just kick people out and say good luck, and not expect well, them to 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 re you know to come to come right back in. Well, I think the problem is a lot of places that have policies to combat that in place are really a name only. Like Virginia, you're supposed to leave with a state ID and a uh, your social security card and your birth certificate. I've known maybe one of the 10 people who've gotten out in the past year or so who've actually left with a state ID. One guy, he went, he had an interstate compact. He lived with his sister in Mississippi. They not only didn't send him an ID, they didn't even send him a social security card. So he's got his birth certificate. He goes to DMV and they're like, yeah, that's not enough. We need, we need more identification. We need a bill. We need something else. So now he's out there. He's in a state he's never been in. He can't get a job because he doesn't have an identification. I mean, he could work under the table theoretically, but there are really no jobs because he's in a really impoverished area. So he's trying to get a legitimate job and he has to go through a month of this. And then finally he manages to get an ID and immediately gets a job and, you know, stays out of trouble. But if he hadn't had his sister to support him and, you know, to rely on for that month, what was he going to do? He'd be right back, probably just doing stuff to get money, to get food, just basic necessities that he needed. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, just I give you another example. I'm sorry, this one's still just on my mind. He got a call from his probation officer in Virginia that he didn't know he had because nobody told me he had a Virginia probation officer. They only told me he had a Mississippi one. And they said, by the way, uh, you have a violation hearing next month. You need to be here or you're going to prison. He said, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, well, you know, you haven't paid your fines and you have to pay your fines by the completion of the period of probation for that particular charge. If you don't, you're in violation. And he said, okay, first of all, like, who are you? I've never talked to you before. What's going on? And the guy goes, oh, yeah. So he does some research and he finds out and he goes, he, he has a conversation with this, this uh, probation officer. He, he has the money. He pays the, the fines off. And then he calls him up. He goes, OK, so we're going to a hearing next week. And in this hearing, I'm going to explain how when I came to Mississippi, I met with my probation officer. They gave me a list of things I had to do with things I had to pay. And I have not violated once. I haven't broken any rules. I paid everything I was supposed to pay because it was clearly laid out. Do you really want to go tell this judge that you never contacted me, you never laid anything out, you failed to do your job so fundamentally that I didn't even know you existed? Do you really want to go in front of a judge and admit to that failure at your capacity? The guy was like, oh, hold on, let me call you back. And so <laughs> an hour and a half later, he goes, well, I talked to the Commonwealth attorney and uh, they're going to go ahead and waive the charges because you paid the fine. And we're just we're going to give you an exception on this one. It's like, no, you're you completely failed at your job. But again, I'm not saying that to be critical of that as a person, because I know in Charlottesville, we're at 40% staffing for probation for all. Yeah. How are you supposed to handle more than twice the caseloads you, you're already overbooked to handle? I mean, again, the system is just underfunded and 
the funding that is there is going to all the wrong things. <laughs> that that's exactly it. It's it. I'm I'm a huge person for open accountability, and I think all of this money should be audited. And I, you know, government bureaucrats should not be making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, they should that money should be going back into the. Okay, yeah, if you have a high level, high ranking position, yeah, you deserve a little bit of money, but it should be going to the people who need it the most. It should be going for the services to get these to raise these people back up. I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan, and this is not meant derogatory in any way. But America needs to to raise its lo, its losers up and have less losers so that we can have a better society. We can have better, more educated people. We can have. I would love to have a a prison rate of zero because they're all you know happy and working and all that type of stuff and and being productive members of society, no matter how that may be. I completely agree. <laughs> I just don't understand why this is a, a, a controversial subject for some people. I, I mean, I think it's two things. I think there's an ethos of punishment that people can't get away from. And they they just are in so much pain or they have so much, you know, resentment that they want somebody to hurt. Like, I was hurt, so I want you to hurt. And that's the mindset. I mean, it's a very juvenile mindset, but I get it because they haven't had someone help process that pain or help get them past that mindset. But then additionally, it's it's about money because mm -hmm. in the long term, this makes sense. But people don't care about the long term. It's just like schools. People say, oh, imagine if we put more money into these schools. We could help these kids. They could get a better education. They see people are like, oh, that sounds great. They're like, oh, but we're going to need to take money from your school district to do that. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't. And it's this zero sum game mentality where I can't give up any of mine and we can't invest in anything that may or may not work or may take time. Like, cause we need it now. We need it. It's just, it's such a shame. And I think that, uh, did you ever read Plato's Republic? No. I, so I, I don't, one of the random things that I read in prison, um, and they have the idea of these guardians, that society should be run by people who have no vested interest in society, that get nothing from it, they don't get any money, they're completely removed, they live this Spartan lifestyle, and while I don't think that's necessarily the, the most realistic, there's such a good like principle there, that when we have a society that's run by money and it's run by people who benefit from it, we're never going to have the best decision made, we're never going to have the best policy in place, we're going to have people that are going to continue to benefit from their decisions, and the prison industrial complex, the way prisons are run is one of those really unfortunate circumstances. Do you believe, though, that there should be some form of punishment? So I, I look at punishment like I look at guilt. So I think we feel guilt as a motivation to make a change, to not do whatever we did again. And I think punishment should be that same way. We could remove someone from society as a punishment to say, hey, this is your reminder that you need to change. This is your stimulus, your impetus to change and start doing something differently. But at that point, if you continue to apply punishment, it's like if a kid does something wrong and you spank him, okay, maybe, like, I, I don't necessarily believe in corporal punishment, but okay, that's one thing. But if you a kid does something wrong and you spank him for a week, like, that's not helping anything. You're, you're then reinforcing negative behaviors uh, when they haven't done anything, when it's so far removed from the actual issue. And I think it's a problem because that's kind of the mindset we have. We basically say, okay, we're going to spank you through your entire prison term because we're going to punish you with that. And then we're going to spank you when you get out because we're not going to let you get a job or help you get housing or help you get you know, any of the training or the support you need. And it just – it doesn't make sense. It's, it's the same thing as beating a kid for something they did 10 years ago, and you shouldn't be beating the kid in the first place. If you want to sit him in the corner and tell him to reflect on what he did, I'm all for it. Like that can be the punishment. But anytime you're actually making someone worse, you're defeating the purpose of, of the prison system. I don't know of a single person I've ever known that's gone into prison who said that I came out as a better person. You're you're an exception. But the majority of the time it was if I wanted to learn how to be a, an, an amazing criminal, I could have gotten a, you know, a, a Ph.D. in criminology from inside the prisons because there's not they're not providing that those resources. Well, and, and the reality is that 
I, I came out a better person in spite of my experience in prison, not because of it. Um, and I mean, in some weird way, the, the trauma that I experienced and the struggle and the heartache and the, the guilt and everything did kind of create the crucible through which I kind of emerged the person that I am. Um, but again, that was because I had people to guide me through that process and support me that that support isn't available for the vast majority of people. And I found very few people who didn't have that support who managed to turn their life around. And the ones that do, those are the people that I admire the most. The guys in prison who don't have family and don't have support, but manage to find one other guy and they hold each other up and they manage to find one other guy and they hold each other up. And all of a sudden you see a group of guys that are educating each other or supporting each other, or helping each other become better people because they're basically, it's almost like uh, Australia. Like it's this penal colony where they're out and they have no support and no hope, but they're finding a way to lift themselves up. And now they're a developed nation. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's, yeah, it's about holding each other accountable for what, for what your actions are. No, that's that's awesome. And again, I'm I'm very happy that you have you have become the person that you have and that you're you're mentoring and that you're inspiring people. You know, that's an amazing thing is that, you know, you can overcome any obstacle in your life. And that's an I I, I resonate with that message as well, because I've I've screwed up in my life, too, and deserve second. And I believe everybody deserves a second chance. So, no, that's an amazing story. And I appreciate you for sharing it. Absolutely. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I really, really appreciate this. And again, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And I appreciate who you are and being honest and open and everything that you said. And I, I love everything that you're doing. Thank you very much. So I hopefully I would love to, you know, have a, a further conversations down the road. Maybe I'd be totally open to that. Absolutely. Just yeah, reach out. Let me know. I, I have so many things going on. So many like so many meetings every day, so many emails, so many messages. I can't always keep track, but please reach out. I'm more than happy. I, I like I like that you're doing what you're doing, that you kind of like shifted and matured perspectives. You have a different perspective, but you come from a base that allows you to understand, like you're, you're not in a divided place. So many of the criminal justice reform people that I talk to are like anti-police or anti, and it's like, you can't be anti anybody if you want things to get better. Like you have to look at everyone as a person. Um, and you're, you're really personable. You're re like, you're really good at this. Like I've done a couple of <laughs> podcasts where people are just terrible and it's like, look, you're a great person. You got great intentions, but like this probably in your lane. So. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I did want to ask you one question, though. Um, how did you get into doing the social media stuff? Like, again, I understand that you said that there's cell phones in prison and all that type of stuff. But like, how did you latch on to that as the thing to do? I didn't. <laughs> so uh, my then girlfriend, uh, we had so we had this relationship where we would talk on the phone and that was all we could do because there were no visits during COVID. And she said, we need a project to get through this. Like, we need to do something together. So we did a podcast, which was just me calling on the phone and us talking about okay. criminal justice reform or trauma or something. And when I got out, she was like, Jesse, like, this is really good. Like, people are going to like this. You have to do this. And I thought she was crazy. I thought she was completely out of her mind. Like, nobody's going to want to hear about prison. This doesn't. I didn't know prison talk was a thing. Like, I didn't know there were people <laughs> out there like Larry Lawton or Jessica Kent. Um, so I came out and I made a video. And within like two days, it had 10,000 views. And I, I called up her friend who was really big on social media. I was like, is that normal? She was like, no, Jesse, that's not normal. And so... <laughs> It just kind of grew. And for me, I would have stopped if it wasn't for the feedback. If it wasn't for the people who reached out who said, you know, I've got a son who's locked up. This this makes such a difference. Or I was a victim of a crime and I've never heard anybody take accountability before. That gives me some sense of hope or peace. Or somebody who says, hey, I work in law enforcement. I want to do a better job. Let's have a conversation. I've had these amazing conversations. And I, I think the one that still sticks with me is, is I was over in Stanton and there was this kid. We were at a documentary premiere and this kid kept looking at me. It was really weird and I didn't even make the connection. 
And at the end of the night, he comes up to me with the most earnest, like heartfelt, emotional thing about like, I want you to know that like, you've helped me see the world in a different way. Like you've helped me understand who I want to be and what I want to do. I was just like streaming tears at this point. It was like, if I have the opportunity to have an impact on one person that's that profound, that conveys that much emotion and that much meaning, I want to do that. Like that's going to give me the most happiness and the most kind of contentment in my life. That's amazing. And I, you've got the personality to do it and you've got the reach and that's awesome. If, if there was one group of people that you could really touch and, and reach out to, who would that be? It would be kids who have lost their way, but haven't necessarily made that, you know, that one really bad decision yet. If I could figure out a way to, to find them, show them some sense of hope or some, you know, show them their failure of imagination, let them know that their possibilities or their, their capabilities are far beyond what they imagine. And then, you know, hopefully help them find a different direction, help them get a hug, help them know it's going to be okay. Because I remember being that kid and hating myself and hating everyone around me and being absolutely miserable and making all these decisions that caused so much pain. And if I could stop somebody from doing that to other people as well as to themselves, like that would be it. That's awesome. That's a great message. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And just people can find you where? Uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, second underscore chancer. So S-E-C-O-N-D underscore chancer, C-H-A-N-C-E-R. Awesome. Jesse, thank you so much, man. I, I wish you the greatest of luck, and I really, really hope we can continue these conversations. Uh, sounds good. All right, thank Jesse, you. you have a good one, man. You too. Take care. Take care.